This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Biological invasions are familiar to many of you, I'm sure, either through personal experience or reading media accounts about uh, the latest biological invasion. Despite the familiarity uh, with this phenomenon, I wanted to start off talking about invasions in very general terms. Biotic invasions can occur when organisms are transported to new, often distant ranges where their descendants proliferate, spread, and persist. A key word in this definition, of course, is transported. Humans are the active agent of dispersal, carrying organisms across biogeographic boundaries that those organisms uh, weren't able to cross on their own. Introduced species are known by a number of terms, including exotic, alien, non-indigenous, non-native, weedy, and pest. The term invasive, however, is used carefully by invasion biologists and is usually confined to cases where an introduced species becomes abundant, spreads widely, and has measurable environmental impacts. Most ecologists would agree that the field of invasion biology started with the publication of The Ecology of Invasions by Animals and Plants by Charles Elton in 1958. Elton was a prominent English ecologist who studied population fluctuations and the structure of food webs. And during World War II, gave a series of broadcasts on BBC Radio where he talked about environmental harm caused by biological invasions. After the war, he collated this information uh, into a book, uh, which he published in 1958. And this book largely anticipated the field of invasion biology. Elton passed away in 1991, uh, so he was never able to see uh, the impact uh, of his important book. Invasion biology as a field uh, grew tremendously in the 90s and 2000s and remains an important part of ecology. Biological invasions are multi-stage processes. And in my talk today, I'm going to discuss each of these stages uh, in turn. Uh, species that are uh, transported by people to new environments of, are, of course, native somewhere. And many of those introductions fail to establish. Uh, the minority that do uh, sometimes spread, and those species can cause environmental impacts. Given the arrangement of the Earth's continents, uh, the biota found uh, in different terrestrial environments is distinctive. And this was first brought into focus by Alfred Wallace, the famous English evolutionary biologist, who in 1876 uh, published a book on uh, the biogeographic realms uh, of the world. It's possible, for instance, to compare habitats in the Nearctic to habitats in Asia, and even, those, even though those habitats may look outwardly similar, uh, the organisms that make up those ecosystems uh, are very different from one another. And this is a consequence of uh, the separation of these continents, long periods of evolutionary time, and speciation. Humans began uh, their migration out of Africa uh, many thousands of years ago, and migrations throughout the world by humans uh, carried domesticated plants and animals with them over many millennia. But it's really only recently that uh, globalized commerce and high-speed travel have led to species being introduced at rates that are uh, completely unprecedented. 
Invertebrate species such as insects shown here and marine invertebrates are oftentimes unintentionally introduced and uh, stowaways in uh, transportation. Uh, marine invertebrates, for instance, are oftentimes uh, carried in marine ballast water. Uh, insects uh, hide in all kinds of uh, commerce and are spread throughout the world at a currently a very high rate. Uh, in contrast, uh, many species of plants and vertebrates tend to be intentionally introduced, and some of these introductions can uh, go awry and cause environmental impacts. The rapid increase in the introduction of non-native species uh, is evident from this graph that was published by Simberloff et al. about 10 years ago. It shows the an 800-year history of mammal introductions into Europe and New Zealand. And you can see that in the late 1800s, uh, the rate of introduction uh, increased greatly. Another thing that you can note from this graph is that in New Zealand, uh, the rate fell off at, at some point in the 1900s. The people in New Zealand uh, realized that biological introductions uh, were sometimes environmentally harmful and took steps uh, to limit new introductions and to, to uh, try to manage introduced species that were already established. One of the interesting aspects of biological invasions is that most introductions fail. This phenomenon is uh, well studied in intentional introductions where information about uh, the number of individuals in a particular introduction event and the timing of an introduction event uh, are often recorded. For unintentional introductions, which represent uh, a large number of biological invasions, uh, it's impossible to know uh, why introductions fail because uh, the invasions uh, took place, or the introductions rather, took place um, without uh, anybody knowing about the introductions themselves. Another generality about uh, biological invasions is that most established introductions fail to spread. And even those that do spread, only a minority uh, become environmentally impactful. Spread is a fascinating process that combines uh, population growth and individual dispersal. This is a map of the invasion of North America by the European starling. Starlings were introduced repeatedly in the 1800s into the northeastern United States, and only after several introduction uh, attempts did a population establish, uh, but it quickly spread um, throughout the 20th century to occupy uh, most of North America. The regular pattern of invasion by introduced species has inspired mathematical biologists uh, to try to predict the rates of spread based on population growth and measures of individual dispersal. Introduced populations can themselves serve as beachheads for the establishment of other introduced populations. And this pattern is nicely illustrated by uh, Harmonia axiridis, which is a ladybird beetle used in, in biological control. Ladybird beetles uh, consume aphids, which are agricultural pests. This species is native to uh, Eurasia and was introduced into North America. And those North American populations, based on DNA variation, are believed to be the source of introduction to other introduced populations. And this global jump dispersal uh, makes it difficult to predict the large-scale pattern of invasion exhibited by introduced species. Non-native species interact with native species uh, in a variety of ways, including competition, predation, uh, parasitism, and disease. And the most damaging of invasive species can alter species composition, 
uh, reduce biodiversity, compromise ecosystem services, and transform ecosystems. Biological invasions also combine with other forces of environmental change, such as land use intensification, habitat loss and fragmentation, and climate change. And a challenge of invasion biology is to isolate the independent effects caused by invasions themselves and those that are a result of interactions with other forces of environmental change. I wanna talk about several examples of uh, highly damaging invasions, uh, not to uh, lead you to conclude that all introduced species are incredibly harmful, but to emphasize the point that some biological invasions can result in large environmental impacts. An example of this type of impact are grass fire cycles that result from uh, the invasion by uh, non-native annual grasses that can transform ecosystems through positive feedback loops resulting from uh, the flammability of grasses and uh, their ability to sustain fires that kill woody vegetation. And grass fire cycles are an important problem throughout semi-arid ecosystems in many parts of the world. This may be especially true in the western parts of North America. Large portions of the Great Basin have been converted from sagebrush steppe to grasslands composed primarily of cheatgrass and other non-native uh, species of grasses. And the Mojave Desert is also susceptible to grass fire cycles as well. The Dome Fire, for instance, in 2020 uh, is believed to have consumed more than 1 million Joshua trees, and this fire was uh, sustained by red brome and other grasses uh, that uh, can occur commonly in parts of the Mojave Desert. Vertebrate invaders can also be environmentally disruptive. This figure comes from a meta-analysis published by Doherty et al. in 2016 that shows the ability of different vertebrate invaders uh, to reduce the populations of birds, mammals, and reptiles, and also to drive those species uh, extinct. And you can see that cats and rats figure prominently amongst these vertebrate invaders and uh, have a variety of uh, effects on uh, the native biotas where these species are introduced. The impacts of biological invasions can be hard to predict. And an example of this kind of surprising change that results from uh, biological invasions is illustrated by the work of Carolyn Curley and Don Kroll and colleagues who studied the effects of rat introductions in the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. The diagram on the left shows the food chain on Howadox Island uh, in the presence of rats, which were introduced into Howadox Island several centuries ago. Rats led to the local extinction of gulls and shorebirds, which are important predators of grazing intertidal mollusks that feed on intertidal algae, seaweeds in other words, and the presence of rats has a strong negative indirect effect on algae, and those rocky intertidal ecosystems in the presence of rats become dominated by invertebrate animals. The removal of rats from Howadax Island um, led to the recolonization of this island by gulls and shorebirds, and those uh, recolonists uh, fed on uh, grazing mollusks, which led to the restoration of rich algal communities in rocky intertidal habitats. So in this case, the birds had a positive indirect effect on algae in the rocky intertidal. My own work on invasions is uh, 
in a similar vein. I work on ant invasions and have been studying the effects of Argentine ant invasions in particular on the Channel Islands off the coast of Southern California. We've documented the displacement of uh, native ants on Santa Cruz Island, and that's shown in the bottom left. And I've been working with the Nature Conservancy and the National Park Service on Santa Cruz Island in an island-wide eradication of the Argentine ant. We're now in the post-treatment monitoring phase of this eradication, uh, which appears successful. And we're uh, carefully quantifying uh, the recovery of native ant communities uh, following the removal of the invasive Argentine ant. Island ecosystems, um, whether in the Aleutians or off the coast of Southern California, provide examples of ecosystems that can be restored if uh, invasive species can be eradicated. And uh, these kinds of research efforts uh, are promising uh, because they uh, can be used to study not only the effects of invasive species, but also the ability of native ecosystems to recover following the removal of those species. The costs of biological invasions are enormous, and they're also growing. These may seem um, to be obvious points, and a challenge in invasion biology is to carefully quantify uh, the costs of biological invasions more precisely. A recent paper published in Nature by Diagne et al. Uh, attempted to estimate costs associated with biological invasions. Uh, this figure shows the top 10 uh, introduced species uh, in their study in terms of cumulative costs. And you can see that, that some of these species have uh, very costly impacts in the environments in which they're introduced. Another point in this paper however, is that every time a new introduced species is established um, outside of its native range, that adds to the costs of invasion. And uh, Diagne et al. were able to use this principle to show um, estimates of how both damage costs and management costs were steadily increasing over time. So the damage caused by invasive species is enormous and it's also growing. So in order to limit uh, the harm caused by biological invasions and to, to decrease the rate at which um, the cost of invasions is increasing, it's very important to focus on uh, early stages of invasion. Remember I emphasized that um, while eradications on islands may be feasible, on continental ecosystems uh, they're often infeasible and invasive species that persist uh, can require long-term control which is almost always very expensive. Countries like Australia and New Zealand have adopted a proactive approach that has resulted in limitations on the harm caused by biological invasions. And this cost-effective approach uh, involves uh, regulations on trade, inspections of commerce, and rapid institutional responses uh, to emerging threats. And while these uh, policies uh, can be unpopular to implement. Um, those countries have illustrated that they have uh, benefits in terms of limiting the harm caused by biological invasions. I'd like to thank uh, CARTA for uh, inviting me to speak in the symposium, and I'd like to thank you for your attention. I'm glad for the opportunity to discuss the emerging impact of com comparative genomics on understanding evolutionary processes, including extinction. 
This new capacity to understand the evolution of life through the evolution of genomes can be used to better assess threats to biodiversity and even help restore biodiversity. This knowledge, along with the ability to save living cells from which animals and plants can be produced, offers a new role for human intervention and a novel development in life on the planet. As we've heard, we're experiencing an accelerated extinction rate, largely due to human causes. Extinction is an endpoint. There are many species that are declining and we're losing biodiversity even without having an extinction event. It's estimated that one third of vertebrate species are in decline. And the International Union for the Conservation of Nature that assembled the red list uh, for the species that they have uh, analyzed, 28% are recognized as threatened or endangered. So we are in uh, a very challenging time for biodiversity. But knowledge of extinction can be gathered from fossil evidence, from studying um, extant species genomes and back through time, and also of uh, ancient uh, uh, extinct species uh, with DNA methods. I wanna focus for a moment on the Wrangell Island mammoth. This is the last population, surviving population of mammoths. And because of preservation of uh, specimens, uh, good genome assemblies have been produced from Wrangell Island um, mammoths. And um, uh, this has allowed a, an evaluation of their genetic status as they were declining uh, in comparison to um, other mammoth populations and the closest living relative of mammoths, which is the Asian elephant. In the center figure there, um, in the blue column on the right, are the, is the genome, uh, uh, is the Wrangell Island mammoth, and the colors coming from the bottom up to the darker purple at the top represent the severity of, of deleterious impact of mutations across the uh, genomes that are represented there. And the Wrangell Island mammoth has, has more mutations in the deleterious categories than the um, other mammoths, the Siberian mammoths, and it's been suggested that the Wrangell Island mammoth was in a mutational meltdown. By comparison of Wrangell Island mammoth mutations with similar locations in the human genome, this word cloud has been produced to show what the impacts of these mutations might be, which are uh, indeed quite severe. It's possible to use genome information to infer uh, historical aspects of population size, especially the effective population size. This is the number of individuals that actually contribute genetically across generations. And the Hawaiian monk seal is a critically endangered U.S. species. There's a, um, this is a information from a, um, a preprint um, and depicting this population size through time. And the scale goes from hundreds of thousands of years ago back to a thousand years ago. And you can see that the uh, Wrangell Island popul mammoth population declined rapidly, uh, but it was 50,000 years ago. And in the last 30,000 years or so, the Wrangell Island population of mammoths has stayed small. For them to have survived, they must have purged some of their genetically deleterious mutations. And we, by studying genomes of other species, we're gathering more information about this. Two species I'll mention are the vaquita, 
the most endangered cetacean in the world, a critically um, uh, endangered population. In the, it's only found in the northern Gulf of California, and there may be only a dozen individuals that survive. In the lower left figure, you can see the genetic variation across the vaquita genome. The horizontal red line represents the level of genetic diversity in the human genome. And across the uh, blue uh, shades of blue chromosome scaffolds of the vaquita genome assembly, you can see that there's much lower genetic variation. But that variation is not um, in large blocks of uniformity. Um, so it's, it's consistent with there not being a high degree of recent inbreeding, even though the population is small. So the vaquita may have purged a lot of its genetic variation. Mountain gorillas are another example. There's two populations of, of mountain gorillas. Together they comprise something approximately 1,200 individuals. And in comparison to their much more numerous western lowland gorillas, these are the gorillas you see in zoos, uh, Western lowland gorillas have more severe deleterious mutations. They have a much larger population size and they have more mutational differences, but they also have a larger proportion of severe deleterious mutations as estimated by mutations that are believed to cause loss of function of a gene. On the other hand, the mountain gorillas have um, proportionately higher um, number of um, missense mutations, mutations which alter the um, amino acid sequence of a protein, but may not be um, uh, highly deleterious. And in small populations, mildly deleterious mutations can accumulate. And that's because this is, there's a deterministic process involved. It's been called the extinction vortex. In a small population, it's more likely that individuals will reproduce with other individuals uh, to whom they're closely related. And in small populations, um, there won't be a lot of offspring, and there will uh, uh, be less likelihood to transmit the entire gene pool from generation to generation. So that these combined effects of inbreeding and genetic drift cause a loss of genetic variation, which um, causes a, a reduction in individual fitness, less um, resilience to disease, less fecundity, lower reproduction rate. These factors combine to produce a smaller population, and we're in a positive feedback loop. So what can we learn about um, extinction from a more comprehensive survey of uh, mammalian genome assemblies? And this is work that's been underway. At the end of 2020, um, uh, the Zoonomia Consortium published the uh, alignment of over 240 mammalian genomes, many of which were uh, uh, provided by samples from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. And this, this analysis is being continued uh, now um, to specifically with a, um, uh, in a study that emphasizes the uh, application of, of comparative genomics to um, evaluation of extinction risk um, as uh, categorizing species with respect to their uh, threatened status as uh, produced by the uh, red list of IUCN. This is work of uh, Aaron Wilder at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance and Megan Supple in Beth Shapiro's lab at UC Santa Cruz. And using the genomic data uh, uh, from Zoonomia uh, and the alignments, they're able to um, uh, find some correlates with uh, extinction risk across this much larger number of species. 
and they find that overall the genome-wide heterozygosity uh, lower, lower genome-wide heterozygosity is associated with increased uh, risk of uh, being in threatened status. Heterozygosity refers to variation in the genome, and although this study involves only one analysis of only one genome per species, every individual inherits a, a, half, a chromosome from its male parent and a chromosome from its female parent. So they won't be the same. And so the, uh, it's possible to uh, analyze the differences and use that uh, metric to estimate or to uh, uh, estimate the uh, overall hetero, uh, heterozygosity of a population. And in this case, it's strongly correlated uh, uh, negatively with extinction status. That is, the lower the genetic variability, the more likely a species is to be threatened. Using uh, these data to make the demographic inferences, as I showed with the Hawaiian monk seal trajectory, um, they looked at um, uh, all of the species in their analysis, and the warmer colors represent species in the threatened uh, categories. Uh, overall, all of the mammals that were looked at, there's a very significant correlation with this effective population size, actually the harmonic mean of the effective population size. And uh, it's because it'd be very noisy to show them all at once. They're broken down in here, here into um, taxonomic groups of mammals. And in the larger figure are carnivores. And it's pretty easy to see that the endanger, the threatened category species are, have then had longer periods of time with low population numbers. So historical effective population size impacts contemporary conservation status. Um, threatened species have smaller historical effective population size. Threatened species have larger effective population size to census population size ratios. Um, if a population is very large and declines rapidly, it's, the harmonic mean of its effective population size will decrease more slowly than the census population size. And so the ratio will be greatly increased. And for species that we have data like this, um, they, qual they fall into very high risk of uh, endangered status. Overall, uh, uh, Aaron and uh, Megan looked at all of the metrics they could derive from uh, the genomic analysis with regard to the uh, uh, risk, extinction risk uh, uh, classifications. Over the species in the threatened categories, uh, there was a statistically significant association um, that these species had more deleterious mutations in coding regions, lower estimated genome-wide heterozygosity, and smaller effective population sizes. They also noted that increasing the number of annotated genome assemblies would increase the power of these analyses, and we can look forward to seeing more work in this area being done. We've been interested in these kinds of risk assessments with regard to the uh, genetic rescue of northern white rhinoceros, the most critically endangered form of rhinoceros. Uh, there's only two living individuals, both females, but the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance Frozen Zoo has cell cultures from 12 individuals. We've sequenced their genomes and compared them to a similar number of southern white rhinos. And we find that the cell cultures of a dozen northern white rhinos have more genetic variation than the standing population of 15,000 southern white rhinos. And we can see the effects of uh, the history of the demographic uh, trajectory of southern white rhinos in the genomes of, of today's southern white rhinos. 
the uh, southern white rhino went through a genetic bottleneck a century ago, down to 30 or 50 individuals. And so that's why they have lower genetic diversity now. And they also have larger uh, segments of their DNA that's genetically homogeneous. We call these runs of homozygosity that are derived, that occur because um, in the, uh, through the bottleneck, uh, individuals who were more closely related uh, bred with each other and uh, produced these, um, what we call, uh, runs of homozygosity. And those blocks are, are significantly larger in, in southern white rhinos than northern white rhinos. The gene loss is essentially irreversible. Once it's lost, its restoration is slow and is facilit only facilitated by greatly pop larger population size and many generations. And as we can see from the mountain gorillas, selection is not as effective for mildly deleterious genes in small populations. And beneficial mutations can be uh, diminished or lost because of the uh, genetic drift is a larger factor than, uh, is stronger than selection. So the extinction vortex is deterministic, but is it reversible? Is it true that once genetic diversity is lost, it can't be regained? Well, um, we know from small populations of, uh, of species that are in decline, it's possible to rescue their fitness by uh, translocation of individuals um, back into those populations. That's known as genetic rescue, and the Florida panther is a classic example. But could genetic rescue be possible using advanced cellular and genetic techniques, such as artificial insemination, um, cloning, and um, applying stem cell uh, technology with uh, assisted reproduction methodologies. And um, in an evaluation or an exploration of that possibility in collaboration with Revive and Restore, a, a nonprofit conservation biotech organization, and Viagen, Equine, and Pets, the uh, world's biggest uh, commercial cloning company, uh, we produced a uh, Pshavalsky's horse clone um, from cell cultures of an individual uh, that were established in 1980. Uh, that individual is now deceased, but his clone um, uh, has now more, gen has, is the most genetically valuable stallion for the breeding population of this uh, endangered species. This clone was named Kurt in honor of Kurt Bernerschke, the founder of the Frozen Zoo and a founding member of CARTA. This same collaboration has also teamed up to clone the first U.S. endangered species, a black-footed ferret um, named Elizabeth Ann. The cells for cloning Elizabeth Ann were derived from a, an individual from the last wild population who was brought into the managed breeding program that saved the species, but she left no living descendants in the current population. So this cloned black-footed ferret um, has a, a substantial amount of genetic variation that's lost from the current population. And when she breeds, we hope to be able to evaluate restoring that variation into the wild population. So the collection of living cells in the frozen zoo has many 
uh, utilities. And uh, we explored uh, a while ago the opportunity to make induced pluripotent stem cells out of these in collaboration with Gene Loring and Inbar Friedrich Ben Nunn at the Scripps Research Institute. This work is being continued by Marisa Carodi at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, who's produced um, induced pluripotent stem cells from nine northern white rhino individuals. And these graphics uh, depict the um, evidence that these uh, cell cultures are indeed have in markers of pluripotency. So I want to give a shout out to the uh, team that uh, has made this possible, the frozen zoo team that banks the cells and the reproductive sciences team that is banking uh, semen and the conservation genetics team that banks uh, uh, frozen tissues and uh, undertakes the genomics work with uh, part of Zoonomia and our collaborators. And just uh, sum up by saying Comparative genomics offers a new tool for extinction risk assessments, and the news is maybe that we need to be more concerned about the loss of genetic diversity um, than we have been, and that cellular-based genetic rescue may be a potential option for mitigating uh, losses of genetic diversity within species and preventing species extinctions, but it will depend on greatly enhanced efforts to bank cells um, because at the present time, approximately 6% of these IUCN threatened category species actually have individuals cryopreserved. Thank you. One symptom of our planet-altering behavior is an ever-growing number of human-made chemical contaminants in our daily life. Those chemicals of most concern are chemicals that have hormone-like properties, the so-called endocrine-disrupting chemicals, or EDCs. I like this quote that comes from one of our major medical journals, The Lancet, an editorial a couple of years ago, because it explains how I feel about these endocrine-disrupting chemicals. They're not just a public health problem, they're a planetary health problem. And in the few minutes I have, I'm going to try to explain to you why I and my colleagues am so concerned about endocrine disrupting chemicals. Our endocrine system makes hormones, and these hormones create complex signaling networks that control our metabolism, our growth, our sexual function, our sleep, and our behavior. Spurious signals from endocrine disrupting chemicals act like radiostatic that can disrupt this complex signaling. Let's think about a typical morning in America. You wake up, do your personal grooming, hit the car, and head for your office. Perhaps on the way you stop for breakfast. By the time you sit down in that office chair, you've already been exposed to many, many different endocrine disrupting chemicals. In your personal care products, the plasticizers, the preservatives, the antimicrobials. In your upholstery, the flame and stain retardants that make our life so much easier, in the pressure printed receipts that we handle on a daily basis, and the packaging that makes our coffee and our foods water and grease proof, the linings are water and grease proof. In order to understand the concerns of these chemicals, we need to back up and think about what makes us who we are. Who we are, our phenotype, what we look like, how we behave, and our disease risk is due to the interaction of our genes and our environment. Now, we spend a lot of time sequencing the human genome, and we know a lot about gene action. We know less about how the environment impacts us. 
But we know that species adapt to their environment. We see it all the time. In agriculture, we can spray for pests and we can spray herbicides to control weeds. And eventually those weeds will stop paying attention to that herbicide and begin to grow again. In the laboratory, we could expose yeast to noxious chemicals that kill them. And a few mutant yeast cells will escape and grow. Every year we get a flu vaccine and it changes every year because the flu viruses evolve and change. And so we try to create a vaccination that will capture the viruses that we think we'll be most exposed to. And of course, we've all watched SARS-CoV-2 evolve and mutate in real time. There are two ways that, that we can adapt to our environment, either by DNA mutations, direct changes to the sequence of our DNA that give us a new phenotype, like the ability to escape an herbicide, but we can also create epimutations, changes not to the DNA itself, but chemical changes to the proteins that package that DNA. And these are not changes to the DNA sequence, but they too can give a new phenotype because they can affect the way our genes are expressed. And it's these types of changes that are so interesting and important from the standpoint of environmental effects. Because it's our epigenome that allows us to be environmentally responsive. Now, this responsiveness to the environment, whether it's natural changes like famines and droughts or exposure to human-made endocrine disrupting chemicals, can have costs to our fertility, our development, and our health. EDC exposures have been linked to metabolic changes like diabetes and obesity, to behavioral changes like autism, and to the increases in disease risk like cancer, prostate, and breast cancer. I'm going to focus on reproductive effects because that's where my expertise lies. And I actually began my research career focused on perhaps the best known environmental effect on our reproduction, which is the effect of maternal age on our ability to make a normal egg. So we all know that as women get older, they're at an increased risk of having a Down syndrome baby, a chromosomally abnormal baby. Down syndrome is an aneuploid condition. It's an extra chromosome 21. The increased risk is correlated with age. So as you can see from this curve, by the late 30s, the incidence of these pregnancies skyrockets. You can also see at the other end of our reproductive lifespan, there's also a little increase, and this is real. So at both ends of our reproductive life, there's an increase in our propensity to make abnormal eggs. Well, about 20 years ago, I was convinced that this was due to subtle changes in our hormones, because we know that our cycles are not very normal, either at the beginning or at the end of our reproductive lifespan. And I thought that maybe this was driving the chromosome abnormalities. Mice don't make very many mistakes making eggs, but we thought we could use them to ask this research question. And it was in the midst of these experiments that I entered the world of endocrine disrupting chemicals when all of my mice were suddenly exposed to bisphenol A or BPA because a temporary worker washed our cages and water bottles with the wrong detergent, the floor detergent, and immediately exposed our animals to bisphenol A. And we saw it as a change in the eggs from perfectly normal control females. Well, if we fast forward 20 years later, we know a lot more things about these endocrine disrupting chemicals and their effects on our reproductive abilities. We know that it's not just limited to eggs. It's not just the egg that's vulnerable, 
The process of making sperm is also vulnerable. It's not just BPA, the replacement bisphenols that have allowed the production of BPA-free plastic can also induce these effects, as can other plasticizers like phthalates and other endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And effects aren't just limited to the exposed generation. Some of these effects can be seen in subsequent unexposed generations. So let's examine these in a little bit more detail. It takes a long time to make an egg. In the developing fetus, that developing ovary is actually supporting the development of all the oocytes that that female will produce in her lifetime. And some very important pieces of the process of making an egg take place here. In the neonatal period, those developing eggs become packaged, if you will, in follicles that will control their growth and and help them reach a normal egg in adult once there's a proper hormone environment to support this. And so hopefully every, every cycle, this culminates in the ovulation of a chromosomally normal egg. The process of making sperm is a little bit different because it's not starting during fetal development. It's not even starting during neonatal development, although the stem cells that are going to allow for continuous spermatogenesis are being developed here during this neonatal period. And with maturation and the proper hormone environment, of course, we get continuous sperm production. What's really interesting is in both males and females, exposure during all three of these developmental windows Exposure to these endocrine disrupting chemicals can adversely affect the process in both males and females. We've all been hearing a lot about declining sperm counts. This has been in the news a lot lately. And Shana Swan has been a leader in in presenting this information. She's just written a book called Countdown, where she details the evidence for a consistent decline in sperm counts over time. This is thought to be due to exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals, what was originally called the estrogen hypothesis, now more properly should be the EDC hypothesis or the endocrine disrupting hypothesis. The idea being that we think that exposure to these chemicals is causing a decline in sperm counts. But we've never understood how this happens or why this happens. Well, our studies of the male have provided one way that exposure at one time can cause changes to the sperm count. This is a cell from a mouse that's been exposed to BPA. It's trying to undergo the divisions to make a sperm cell, but it's making mistakes and the chromosomes are coming apart. In the male, this does a very interesting thing. This causes the death of the cell. And with enough mistakes, you get a drop in sperm count. So we can see a reason that these endocrine disrupting chemicals could cause a drop in our sperm counts. It also shows us an interesting difference between males and females because females will make chromosome errors and give rise to chromosomally abnormal eggs, and males will kill all of those mistakes as they're being made. One of the most fascinating effects of these endocrine-disrupting chemicals, fascinating from the standpoint of a biologist, is that some of these effects are transgenerational. They not only affect the exposed individuals, but they can persist and affect subsequent unexposed generations. Now, in the laboratory setting, we do this experimentally, not with humans. We don't experiment with humans. But in our mouse models, by exposing the father and looking for effects on sperm counts in that individual, but also in his sons and his grandsons, if we see effects in 
the sun, we can't really consider that individual unexposed because he comes from a sperm cell from an exposed testis. But if we see effects in the grandson, that's really an unexposed individual. And that means that this is a transgenerational effect. So every time I would talk about my male studies and what we were finding, someone in the audience would ask, is this a transgenerational effect? So we decided we should look at that, but we also decided we'd ask a more real life question. And that is, what happens if we have an exposed father and an exposed son and an exposed grandson? Because that's how we are being exposed. It's not like one generation is exposed and these endocrine disrupting chemicals are disappearing. Actually, more of them are appearing and different kinds are appearing. What we found is we found a tremendous increase in the defects in the testis as a result of three generations of exposure. In fact, by the third generation, we had males who who had testicles that were not able to make any sperm. I wish we'd run the experiments for another generation or two, but we did not. And that's pretty sobering. And added to all the other effects of these chemicals, it leads to a number of important questions. How much exposure is safe? For my colleagues and I who study these chemicals, they're hormone-like chemicals. Hormones can exert tremendous effects at very small doses. So we're not sure any level is safe. How are we exposed? How much are we exposed, especially during critical periods of development, like fetal development and the newborn? And what you're all probably thinking is, okay, if these chemicals are so dangerous, why aren't they being regulated? The short answer to that question is, we're working with a regulatory system that's outdated. Essentially, when we started worrying about chemical effects, we were interested in them as toxins. How much did it take to kill us? And we would set up studies to examine what dosage level killed half of the rats. We were interested in whether they were mutating our DNA and, of course, whether they caused cancer. We assumed that the dose makes the poison. If a little bit was bad, more would be worse, and even more would be really bad until eventually you'd get to a dose that would kill you. Well, endocrine-disrupting chemicals defy this simple approach. Tiny amounts can exert powerful effects, and sometimes when you increase the levels, you don't see the same effects, so the effects may go away or change. In the U.S., regulating these chemicals has been difficult because we use standard toxicology testing paradigms developed decades ago to use multiple generations and look at fertility and look at organ end weights over time across generations. And these standard testing for things like BPA have not found evidence of significant harm. In contrast, there are lots of studies like mine taking a very detailed look at a complex subject like making eggs, making sperm, or building a brain. And we see effects that maybe they don't cause infertility, but they certainly affect our fertility. Maybe they don't destroy our our brains, but they certainly can cause behavioral effects. So when regulators look at these studies, they understand the traditional toxicology testing methods, but they don't quite know what to do with studies like ours. So traditionally, we've depended more heavily on the traditional toxicology testing results and assumed that BPA is not causing harm. How we actually assess the safety of a chemical in this country is like this. We used to look at a maximum dose that was tolerated. Well, that still holds for pharmaceutical drugs. 
but we're more interested for endocrine disrupting chemicals in the lowest dose that gives us an observed effect. Because if we can find this lowest dose, then we can add a safety factor, say of a thousand fold, and say, okay, this must be okay to ingest this amount on a daily basis. This is our tolerable daily intake. This is our safe dose. And then we need to know how much we're exposed to. And if human exposure falls below this level that causes the lowest observed effects, we're okay. We don't have any reason for concern. So that's a risk-based approach where we assume that the risk is minimal if we're at a certain threshold of exposure. The European Union has taken a very different approach. In 2007, their safe dose was very similar to ours in the U.S. When it was realized that we get exposed to BPA by more than just oral exposure, they dropped their safe level and said, eh, maybe we should be more conservative. And this year, they've dropped it, or they're considering dropping it even further, like 100,000 times lower. Why are they making this decision? Well, they haven't made this decision yet. It's still open for discussion. But they're making this suggestion because they're using all of the data. So instead of just relying on those standard toxicology test results, they're pulling all of the data together and actually analyzing the hazard that this chemical represents and concluding that they must be much more conservative. Now, this is good news because this is a good step to take for a chemical like BPA that we think is dangerous, but it hasn't happened yet. And this is just one endocrine disrupting chemical, BPA. There are many, many more, but this is a very interesting time in the history of BPA. So, this is a kind of a gloom and doom story leaving us with what can you do? Obviously, there are a lot of chemicals we need to be concerned about. They affect our fertility and our general health. We need to actually get to our legislators and convince them that we need different regulatory measures to take a look at these chemicals. But that takes a long time. So what do we do in the meantime? In the meantime, I think it's important to develop chemical awareness. And this means we need to read labels. Many of these bad actors are listed on the labels, the phthalates, the parabens, the quaternary ammonium compounds. You can be a savvy consumer and make better decisions. We also need to be careful how we use and think about our plastics. The dishwasher and the microwave is absolutely no place for plastics because heat and strong detergents are an invitation for the chemicals to migrate from these plastics. We also need to rethink their lifespan. This may be your favorite Tupperware container, but if it's showing signs of wear and tear, it's leaching chemicals and you need to get rid of it. And lastly, we need to be very careful what we ask for, and BPA is instrumental in this regard. We ask for BPA to be removed from baby bottles, sippy cups, and other consumer products. That resulted in a lot of BPA-free plastics which simply were BPA being replaced by a host of replacement bisphenols, many of whom have similar actions. And we can't allow this to happen because this is a whack-a-mole game. So we have to be very careful what we ask for and ask for removal of bisphenol A and other bisphenol-like chemicals. But, you know, chemistry is magical today. And green chemistry is a reality. We could actually make chemicals and ensure that they are not endocrine disrupting chemicals before they go onto the marketplace. And this is what we really need to be asking for. 
And I'll stop there, but first I'd like to acknowledge my colleagues, especially the Drona Lab at UCSF, who's been a wonderful collaborator in these studies, as well as these collaborators on the side. And I'd like to thank the organizers for inviting me to be part of this. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.